This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN Plan for the second year running. Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we learn how to negotiate like a pro. And then we hear what the latest domain house price report has revealed for prices in your capital city. Being able to negotiate effectively is such a special skill to have, and there are books, courses, and TED Talks aplenty offering advice on how to do so. The art of the deal is one of the most important in property, and negotiation is key. So how can you master it? Nicole Jacobs is with us today to share her insider info on negotiating property purchases. Nicole is the co-founder and managing director of White Fox Advocacy, and you may have seen her placing bids under the hammer on the block in past seasons. Nick, thank you for joining us and welcome back to Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me, Alice. Now, Nick, this must be one of the most thwarted topics when it comes to buying and selling is the idea of negotiation. Would you say negotiation when it comes to property is an art form that buyers need to master before placing an offer or a bid? (laughs) Uh, I think that negotiation on any platform is an art form. In property, it's incredibly strategic. So what I mean by that is that I believe that you need to have empathy to negotiate well in any instance, but you need to understand the motivation behind all of the parties involved. So, of course, we've got the vendor who's selling their property. We've got the selling agent that we need to understand. And we've got the other buyers that are the competition. And then, of course, sometimes the vendor is the competition. So, you have to understand all the motivations behind these people and what they bring to the table so that you can effectively negotiate. So unless you understand those, then I think the negotiation process is very difficult. Okay, so I'll take the bait. How do we understand their perspective, I suppose, is what I'm saying. We don't know these people from Adam. (laughs) How do we do that? So you need to do your research. Due diligence is key when you're purchasing a property and that's not just finding out what you think the price is worth, but it's finding out, okay, why is that vendor selling? What's the motivation behind their sale? So quick detective work in a property when you can see only one set of clothes or you can see that no one's living there. There's obviously, they've either bought and they've moved out or could be unfortunate circumstances, they've parted ways, but understanding that they do really want to sell is just one key to being able to work out okay. So if they got the right price or if they got the right terms even, they may be very happy to move on even prior to auction, for instance. The selling agent, I mean, what's their motivation behind this sale? Do they know the owner, for instance? Are they just looking for a quick sale? Have they priced it correctly? All those sort of nuances of how the agent is involved. Are they an agent from out of the area? Quite a lot of the times when you get an agent from out of the area, you actually find that they just want that deal to be done because they can't be bothered crossing the tram tracks from one side of Melbourne to the other. So finding out those sort of nuances is really important. The other buyers I find really, really interesting, and that's finding out exactly who they are, maybe what else they've been looking at. That's why we love to go to auctions and just observe sometimes because we can see what's their budget 
you know, have we seen them at multiple properties before? They are probably going to be the competition when we're buying this home for a client. So having an understanding of where they all sit and what they've been looking for and also listening at auctions as to what they're pulling out at so you can gauge what their budget might actually be on a particular property. So Nick, confess to me, do you actually take notes after an auction, like do you say the person in the red hat, yes. you know, went so far? Like do you have a little black book of notes that you've got from all the insights you saw at an auction? Absolutely. So uh, I love a bit of detective work. <laughs> um, I actually take photos of bidders and I will take notes later. Uh, it might be young couple, pregnant lady, uh, man in the hat. So I will know who they are and I can refer to what they've stopped at, what properties they've been at, because that's vital information I can give back to my clients to say, okay, we've seen the pregnant lady at three auctions. She's pulled out at 1.8 every time. Pretty sure her budget's 1.8. So if we believe that this property sits above 1.8, we may actually open at 1.8. And I've seen people just drop their shoulders and you know they're out because of Mm. that. It's really sage advice. And it is actually something that people can do really easily themselves, can't they? Like there's no reason why anyone can't do that basically. And I think if you're going to be going to auction to try and buy a property, you have to go to more than one auction. Mm. You have to know exactly who you're, you're bidding against, but also the other one is the auctioneer. So try and get to some auctions that the auctioneer on the property that you want to buy is also calling at other properties because they have a very distinct style, some of them, and knowing whether that auctioneer is going to go in at half time or not go in if they get the right price for that property and keep going is also really valuable information. Mm. I think also, Nick, when it comes to negotiating, it's also realising it's not just negotiating on price, that obviously settlements are really important lever for a lot of people. If there's a divorce involved, for example, often the vendor will want a quick settlement. And I've also heard of cases of furniture sort of being part of the negotiation that if a house has got beautiful, potentially custom-made furniture or an incredible Murano chandelier or something like that, that people will often negotiate on the bells and whistles of a property. Have you heard of that or do you come across that much? Absolutely. First of all, terms, that's a really important one because quite often the terms may actually outweigh the offer. So you might have two offers come in, one slightly higher than the other, but the one that's come in, which is not subject to finance, which is shorter settlement terms, is really valuable to the owner slash the vendor um, to actually go, yep, actually we'll go with this one because we know we've got the sale, whereas the other one's subject to finance or the terms are just so long for settlement that um, it doesn't marry up with our settlement terms and we'd like to move on. So settlement terms are really important and they're a great way to negotiate without actually giving more money. The one with furniture is really interesting because we're seeing that more and more. People are walking into properties and going, I just love the whole property plus the furniture. And so people are negotiating furniture as well. You know, in that aspect, it's another way of somebody being able to say, well, hey, we can sell everything plus a bit more with this particular buyer. And so that's been a new way of selling properties. Mm. Nick, when can negotiating go really wrong? (laughs) Uh, When you don't do your homework. (laughs) So I think that if you're going into a negotiation and you don't understand everybody that's at that table, then you really are on the back foot. 
research people that you're up against if you can. Sometimes we find out who it is so that we can actually research, you know, not just what they've missed out on, but um, who they actually are. If I notice someone and I think, I know that person, I'll stalk them to find out exactly in a very nice as possible way to find out who they are. You must come from a, a position of strength when you're negotiating. Otherwise, you can potentially spend more money than you need to which would be financially irresponsible and that's really going wrong. And, of course, being very emotional ties up with that spending too much money sometimes because you just don't understand where the property sits in the market and you've decided that it's your home for the next five years and then you might flip it. Well, if you spend way too much money then, you may, on the exit, not actually make as much money as you wanted to. Another one is arrogance, Alice. A lot of people go into it and they have to be right. They have to win at all costs. And that can actually be very detrimental to a negotiation process. So going to it with some flexibility, best negotiations always come out where everybody walks away feeling like they've had a win. You know, we call it having some gravy left on the plate, for instance. You know, you're not just extracting everything you can for yourself. It's very much a process of back and forth, back and forth until everybody's really happy. Mm. So, Nick, how do you deal with that in a often in a couple in a situation where someone is thinking with their head, someone's thinking with their heart? How can two people work through that when it comes to buying property? Because speaking from my own experience, it's a common conundrum I've been in in the past when it comes to property that, you know, I I am emotionally drawn to something and my husband's not. And I see this all the time with buyers where someone is like, just go the extra mile and the other person isn't. How do you sort of come to meet in the middle, I suppose? Oh, such a good question because this is what we see every day. We look at it a couple of ways. So we look at where that property sits in the market and where it could go with emotion uh, and competition. So that tells us exactly where it could finish. But with a couple, we're struggling between one being more emotional than the other. I find writing a list, what are your top 10 things that you want in a property and rank them? It cuts down a lot of wastage on time and effort if you've got a list that you both understand is where you're trying to end up. The other thing is, how long do you want that property for? So it's okay to be emotional about a property if you're going to hold that for the next 10 or 15 years. But as I said before, if you're going to flip that property, getting emotional just isn't the way to go. Everybody makes their money when they buy. So you need to buy really well. And that also means trying to keep in check your emotions, even though you love the property. Just finally, Nick, how do we believe the agent? I think a lot of people are sort of struck by this when they're able to extract all this, what could be really powerful information like you've really elegantly described. But how do you believe what you're being told from some agents who might not be as reliable and trustworthy as one would like them to be? It's such a good question, Alice, because I think a lot of people who miss out on properties walk away feeling completely deflated because they feel like they've been misled by the agent. Now that can come down from a quote price, uh, which we're having, you know, at the moment a bit of trouble with because the statement of information, of course, is not always, you know, the properties are not always being sold in that that range. They're going hundreds of thousands of dollars over. Sometimes that's because of competition and sometimes because of underquoting. So I think that having a healthy relationship with a selling agent is about as far as it goes. Respect them. Let them know when you're interested in a property because you don't want them to sell it without you knowing about it. Ask for the contract if if you're interested, but do not tell them what your budget is. 
Do not tell them that you have another property to sell. Do not tell them that you are desperate to buy. Try and keep as many things as you can about your purchasing for that property as close to your chest as possible. Because at the end of the day, they are there to get the best price possible for the vendor. Mm. And when the shoe's on the other foot, that, that's what any vendor wants them to look at, be looked after from that perspective. So you have to sort of, you, you have to respect that process, don't you? You have to respect the process, but I think do your own homework. I, I mean, I, I keep saying it again and again, your own homework so that you know where that property sits, so that you know what you want to pay for it is vital information. And uh, some statement of information pieces that are being given out actually don't have comparable properties. They're on there, but they're actually not comparable. They're in another suburb. They're on a different facing. They've got less land. They've got fewer bedrooms. I mean, the list goes on. So you have to actually do your own research, get out there and have a look at properties. Every now and again, we hear of someone just turning up to a property and buying it and they've never seen it before in their lives. But I would not advocate that. It's uh, the general rule to go out and purchase property. (laughs) I keep saying it again and again, get that Excel spreadsheet and just start inputting it with any information you can when you're searching for property. The house that you went to, the number of people looking through it, what people were talking about, what the price guide was, and then see what happens at the auction, see how many bidders there were and see how much it goes over reserve and then just keep that tally. You know, it's 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 just like a big project and I think it just is such invaluable information that people can do themselves for free. Absolutely. And you'll feel empowered. When you have that information, you feel completely at ease. So if you're at auction and you're bidding and you know all of this information, you can bid with confidence. And sometimes that means that you might get that property over someone else who actually had more money. But because you were so confident and you really knew where this property sat in the market and you know that you really want it for reasons that you've done all of your homework, then that is a sign of someone that's really researched and done their homework to purchase a property with confidence. Mm. Nicole, I could talk to you for hours, but I have to negotiate my way out of this interview. So thank you so (laughs) much for stopping by and talking with me today. It was really interesting. Fabulous. Thanks so much for having me on the show. House prices have been reaching records this past year, and we have fresh data to unpack. To chat about the latest Maine House Price Report, Editorial Director Adrienne Lowe and National News Editor Ellen Lutton join us now. Ellen, there's been plenty of discussion this year about strong house price growth, and this report is one of the first indicators for 2021. What are we seeing across our capital cities? It's quite remarkable, Adrian. Uh, Nationally, Australia's median house price is now at a record high. It's gone up 5.7% over the quarter, nearly 10% over the past year. And we've got six of the capital cities that are sitting at record high prices. So this is pretty incredible growth across the board. Uh, Let's have a look at some of the results. Sydney has pushed through another price barrier. Sydney has. It's doing what it does best and, and showing super strong growth. Over the three months to March this year, its median house price jumped by 8.7% just in that quarter. So the median house price for Sydney is now sitting at $1.31 million. That's such a lot of money. (laughs) It is a lot of money. It's a lot of money for anyone who's trying to buy property in Sydney. So year on year, that's 12.8% growth year on year. But just in that quarter, that's just phenomenal, 8.7% over the quarter. So in December last year, the median reached a new record of high of 1.2 million 
And that's jumped by more than $100,000 in three months. And the sort of alarming thing, I guess, for people looking at house prices is an indicator of the economic strength of the country. That's not even the strongest growth over the quarter, is it, in percentage terms? No, it's not. Uh, Some people may be surprised by this. For anyone who lives in Canberra, perhaps they'll be less surprised. But, uh, yeah, our um, capital city of Canberra, quarterly house prices have jumped there by 9.8%. And so that's a median now of nearly 930000 for Canberra, which is pretty strong as well. Like, What do we think is sort of the strength of that Canberra market? Look, I think, you know, at a fundamental level, Canberra house prices have responded um, like – all the other capitals have, or you know, indeed nationwide, it's largely largely been driven by those really low interest rates. But you know, there are other factors at play in Canberra. It's you know, there's strong local economy, you know, really strong sense of like, consumer sentiment. You know, with a strong local economy, and then those super low interest rates just has property prices skyrocketing. They're up nearly twenty percent over the past year. It's phenomenal. What about Melbourne? We know the rental prices have been battered by the effects of the pandemic. Have house prices been affected in the same way? No, house prices have not been affected in the same way that rentals have been. In Melbourne, house prices have bounced back strongly post-pandemic. We know that Melbourne obviously suffered the effects of coronavirus more than any other capital city in Australia last year. But this year, they've come back strong over the past quarter. House prices are up 4.9%. And over the course of the year, they're up 7.4%. Melbourne's median is now sitting at $975,000. So it's edging closer and closer to that $1 million median mark. And that's really going to be a big psychological barrier as well and something for the the market in Melbourne, you know, to to respond to. If the median hits a million dollars in Melbourne, that's sort of like a it's a big step towards Sydney territory, isn't it? Yeah, the million dollar median has always been, or for a while, a, a real Sydney thing. Oh, that's something that happens in Sydney. But look, you know, it's twenty five thousand dollars off happening in Melbourne, and it's and it's looking very likely that will happen the next quarter, or at least you know it's imminent. And look, even if Melbourne's growth. That rate of growth, nearly 5% over the quarter, even if that doesn't continue into the next quarter, it will still hit that $1 million mark, which is, um, you know, Melbourne's edged closer, you know, it has edged close to that over the years during other peaks in the market. Uh, I think 2021 is the year Melbourne will get there. Mm. Watch this space, I guess. It's going to be very Mm. interesting to see how, as we say, the market responds. And over the past, you know, a few years, we've really talked about price growth being confined to just a couple of cities. And as you alluded to earlier, that's really not the case this year. What about the rest of the country? Yeah, look, you're so right there. Previously, we've sort of seen, you know, rapid house price growth has always sort of been the domain of traditionally of Sydney and Melbourne. But this year, that's what's so different is that it's all the capital cities. Every single capital city over the past quarter and the past year has seen house prices go up. So apart from Sydney and Melbourne, Brisbane's up 1.3% for the quarter, 5.5% over the past year. Adelaide's up 3%, Perth up by 2.6%. But 
Hobart and Darwin are really, apart from Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, it's Hobart and Darwin where they're just seeing incredible rates of growth. Uh, Hobart, look, it's been a really, really strong property market sort of for the past couple of years. And it just doesn't seem to be slowing down. I mean, the past 12 months, prices have gone up there 17.4%. I mean, house price growth in the Apple Isle, it just sort of seems unstoppable at this point. Well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Like, to what extent is it sustainable? You know, wages in Tassie are lower than the mainland. So if a lot of this growth is from mainlanders moving, this is not going to have a great effect for people who are, you know, trying to buy or need to move to a bigger house who are, you know, Tasmanians. Mm. Yeah, and look, and I know that has has definitely been a sore spot for Tasmanian locals is the rate of growth with their house prices, their housing market in its entirety. In fact, you know, whether you're buying or renting, uh, prices have just been pushed up and, you know, locals are getting priced out of the market. Sure, if you already own a house in Hobart and your house has gone up by 17% over the past year, you'd be thinking, great. But the minute you want to move, if you want to upgrade, or especially if you're a first home buyer trying to crack the market, it's extraordinarily difficult. And uh, and I think, you know, there's people moving to Tassie from mainland Australia. You know, they love Hobart. They love all of Tasmania. It's a beautiful place, but it's putting a lot of pressure on house prices for locals who are trying to get into the market or upgrade within the same market. It's tough. Yeah. And I guess that's the other side across the country, isn't it? This is incredible growth everywhere. As you say, record highs in six capital cities, Perth, you know, on the rebound. So even though it's not at a record high, it looks like it's heading back that way. Mm. It's all great news for vendors and prospective sellers and people with a foot on the ladder already, but it's probably quite disheartening for those looking to buy or for the first time or, or upgrade. Yeah, look, it would be very disheartening. I think it sort of raises the whole issue of um, housing affordability and, you know, that there's been, you know, many debates about this in recent years um, and I think this really brings it this back to the forefront again, particularly if you're buying in these capital city markets. If you're a first-home buyer, it just must feel like the dream's getting further and further out of sight. Because of interest rates are at record lows, we know that. Finance is cheap, there's no doubt about that. But getting that deposit when house prices are rising at the rate that this data shows they have, it's so hard, you know. It, it would be really, really hard to keep up with the pace of the market. And much of the advice, you know, and in Sydney, you know, first-time buyers don't have many other options except to look at the apartment market. So how are units performing across the country? What does this data tell us? Look, the unit market is a little bit more mixed across the country. It's not sort of uniform rises like it has been for houses. In Sydney, prices are still slightly down if you're looking at the figures year on year, but they have risen over the past quarter which shows they're, they're showing a bit of a recovery. They're up by 2.1%. I mean, look, they're still expensive. The median unit price in Sydney is nearly $750,000. So from a first-home buyer perspective, that's a lot of money. But elsewhere, you know, in Brisbane, the unit price is still down. 
Not by anywhere near as much as we've seen in previous house price reports. You know, the Brisbane unit market has been quite depressed for a couple of years now. I think the rate of those falls has slowed, but it is still down. You know, they still fell by 1.4% over the quarter. Median price for a unit in Brisbane is $394,000 kind of confares quite favourably to a, you know, the median priced house, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. So, look, that's a, that's a way in, you know, if you're someone trying to, to get into the market, a first home buyer, an investor, units are they're certainly an attractive way in. Canberra, units are down by 5%. Darwin, units are down as well. But Melbourne is an interesting one. Unit prices there are actually at a record high. So, they went up by 2.6% over the quarter. Some people may find that figure surprising given that, you know, during COVID, you know, we don't have the international uh, overseas students and we know that sort of the unit market has been quite depressed rental-wise and a lot of units are sitting empty in inner-city Melbourne. But I think overall, you know, investors seem to be by and large hanging on to those units And, uh, yeah, they're still sitting at a record high. They're up 3.7% over the year. It's going to be really interesting to see how the market continues over the sort of traditionally quieter autumn period, you know, whether these price gains can continue or whether we are going to see that rate of growth start to slow. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us and, of course, to see the full details of how prices are tracking in your capital city, head to domain.com.au slash news and check out all of the news team's work. Thanks again, Ellen. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN plan for the second year running. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and have new episodes delivered to you as soon as they drop. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe, with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Chat to you soon.